Hey, Betsy. Good to see you. Hey, Brian. How are you doing today? Doing good. I love the new issue of Health Progress. Got it the mail just the other day, and it looks good. Collaborations in healthcare. It's nice to be um, talking a little bit about topics that aren't so COVID-focused as we've been doing over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think um, the, re- the early response to the issue has been very positive, and uh, I think um, you know it's, it's a nice opportunity to delve into some topics um, that we haven't been talking about for the last couple of years. So um, so that was great. Yeah, some excellent partnerships. So if you haven't seen that, it's the uh, new issue, the fall issue of Health Progress. It's on uh, collaborations in care. Uh, so check that out. You can always go to our website to look at that. We're actually going to go back a couple issues, though, because even though COVID, again, is somewhat in the rearview mirror, it's not completely gone. We did an issue that was really good on lessons from COVID. And I think one of the articles is, is uh I thought particularly powerful, and that's we're going to talk to the couple of authors there. So you ready to go? I sure am. Let's do it. This is Health Calls, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm your host, Brian Rudin, and with me for this episode is Betsy Taylor. Betsy is editor of Health Progress for CHA, and again, good to see you, Betsy. So the article that we're going to talk about, and we're going to bring in the two authors in just a moment, and those authors are Dan Graff from the University of Notre Dame, and Kelly Regan. She was the uh, co-author, and I'll introduce them formally here in a couple of minutes. Uh, but the article we want to really focus on was called Just Wages for the Working, Why Healthcare Should Lead the Way. And, you know, as we think about um, what's happening in the healthcare landscape today, a lot of focus among our members are workforce issues. It's around the high cost of labor. Obviously, they're experiencing a lot of financial pressures. We've referenced that in, in previous episodes. Um, so why this topic? Why is, why just wages? Why do you think that's important for uh, the leaders of Catholic healthcare? You know, throughout the pandemic, um, at CHA, we're always talking to members. We're always listening to members. It really helps to inform our content. Um, we got even more deliberate about that in the last couple of years. We just sort of needed to know what was going on on the ground. Um, so we talked to, as we usually do, everybody from CEOs to frontline care providers. And um, much like we saw health disparities in our communities, we also saw some real workforce inequities coming to the forefront. So those were things like, um, you know, some of them it was ex- is extraordinary times, but uh, staffing concerns, um, people feeling like perhaps in some cases they needed more support from management, um, certainly, you know, the burnout that we've been talking about, but part of it uh, came down to wages. And uh, the Health Progress Advisory Council uh, said, you know, we really think um, it's, a, it's a hard subject. Uh, it's, it can be a, a challenging one, but we think we need to talk about, about salary in a Catholic uh, social teaching context. And, um, and so that for us came down to just wages. And how did you uh, come across Dr. Graff and, and Kelly's work? Uh, I did a good amount of checking around, um, started in-house talking to some folks, um, didn't want to necessarily go back to some of the people we talk to all the time, um, and came across initially uh, Dan Graff's work at Notre Dame and thought it was a nice um, look at the issue in the sort of context we would be looking for at CHA. Great. Well, why don't we do this? Let's go ahead and bring them in now into the discussion. And, and Betsy, you'll come back uh, and chat a little bit more. But let me now introduce uh, Dan Graff. He's director of the Higgins Labor Program at the University of Notre Dame. Hi, Dan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks to, to Betsy for asking us to write this piece. 
Yeah, great. So you're coming to us from South Bend? South Bend, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. And then we also have with us uh, Kelly Regan. She's consultant with the Frances- Francisco Collaborative. Did I say that right, Kelly? Yes, yes, the Francesco Collaborative. Great. Uh, and you're coming to us from Ohio? Yes, calling in from Columbus, Ohio. It's so great to be here with you all. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, thanks to both of you for joining us. So let me uh, just jump right in on the article. Um, in it, you refer to a broader labor crisis uh, confronting the country obviously during the pandemic. And I think a lot of us, we've heard the term uh, the great resignation. I think what what struck me in the article was uh, your argument that we need a great reckoning and a, reaffirm, a reaffirmation, I should say, of the dignity of, of work. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the premise of the article? Sure. Yeah. So the, the idea for a great reckoning, I think, came out of uh, the discussions we all were having a year ago um, of uh, what people were calling the great resignation, the sort of people leaving jobs, people pulling themselves out of the labor market. It really, you know, the COVID pandemic to me seemed to uh, come across the the labor landscape in this country like a flash of lightning that it exposed all sorts of longer term underlying problems that had been festering, that there's been a real uh, erosion of good quality jobs in the U.S. Wages have largely been flat for four decades. A lot of what we used to call fringe benefits have been pushed from the employer onto employees. So we've just uh, seen an erosion of the labor contract over several decades um, and not a lot of change. And suddenly COVID seemed to prompt a lot of reflection as well as a lot more conversations on these issues. And uh, so it seemed to to light up uh, a lot of people's thinking uh, that maybe we need to have bigger discussions about labor. And the Great Resignation was just the start of that, I think. So that's the context within which uh, we thought about the article. Uh, the, the, The just wage question is really larger than healthcare, but healthcare is a significant part of our economy. Um, and so uh, the Great Reckoning is something I hope will continue to be wrestling with, especially as we're confronting these big economic and labor problems in the country. What and weigh in on that, Kelly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like thinking even about what is the purpose of healthcare, which is a question we thought about a lot when we were um, framing this article was what is the perfect the purpose of healthcare? What is the purpose of work? Um, and those are to serve the human person, thinking of human dignity. Um, so seeing work, seeing healthcare, all of these things wrapped up in human dignity, I think is is vital for any kind of economic vision that will value the human person as a person. And I just to to add to that, I think. Too often in the U.S. in particular, our discussions of economic questions really are devoid of that human context. We talk a lot about GDP and unemployment and inflation, and these are important indicators of the direction of the economy. We want to pay attention to them, but often the human person gets lost in those discussions of numbers and metrics. Uh, and we really want to foreground the human relationships that are at the center of work. Yeah, and the, another line you had was uh, the idea of a market economy becoming a market society. And I, I thought that was also interesting as this focus on sort of efficiency, uh, again, the uh, the marketplace sort of dominating how we view 
uh, workers, how we view our relationship to our employers. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot to unpack in this article. And the other thing that I, I we found interesting was this tension of moral purpose and economic viability. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm super happy to jump in there. Um, thinking about yeah, this tension, economics and morality, I think it's a dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. We're, we're told to choose that we have to choose an economic logic or a moral logic. Um, and that's false. Um, every economic decision, I'd say, is also at its root a moral decision. Um, so when we're thinking about like navigating our budget decisions, um, any of our economic decisions, like morality is really at the heart of those questions. Um, so kind of reframing our our vision to see economic questions as fundamentally moral questions, I think would do a lot of good. And how does this tension uh, make the healthcare sector in particular an ideal uh, advocacy space for, for just wages and, and workers' rights? Yeah. So thinking again, thinking about what is the purpose of healthcare? I think it's in the word. The purpose of healthcare is care. Um, healthcare is such a fundamentally human institution. Caring for others is so central to Christian theology and the Christian mystery, let alone any sense of morality. So thinking about all of the things that happen in healthcare, we think of loss, grief, brokenness, we think of vulnerability. Um, this is really where the profundity of the human experience breaks through and thinking too of relationality, um, that this is someone's mother that we're caring for, this is someone's son, um, this is someone's wife. Um, I think when we think in those terms, the cold economic logic starts to seem very out of place. Um, and thinking of cold economic logic, I would define that mostly as like these neoclassical maxims that we've taken um, as truth, like profit maximization and efficiency. Um, and you had quoted um, Michael Sandel earlier, he's a philosopher out of Harvard, um, who talked about our drift from being a market economy to becoming a market society. Um, and Sandel has also said that market values crowd out non-market values worth caring about. So thinking of human dignity, um, when we focus on profit maximization and efficiency, we can undermine human dignity and care that really are so central and fundamental to the practice of medicine itself. Um, so thinking about wages as care, um, and this goes to, to wage, considering wage beyond just the paycheck thinking of leave policies, thinking of voice in the workplace, which so much of the just wage framework um, touches on. Yeah. And going back to the, again, the market economy, uh, becoming a market society, you also have a passage in the article about uh, a consultant working with a doctor. And it was around, you know, the IT systems. And, and I've heard this, you know, in my 20 years in healthcare is, is IT has become more and more prominent in the delivery of medicine. You have a lot of clinicians who are like, wow, we spent a lot of time looking at a computer screen. And in the example you gave, uh, a consultant was working with a doctor on a new IT platform, and, and the doctor was saying, you know, I like to spend, you know, five to 10 minutes talking to my patient before I actually get into, you know, some of the, the treatment protocols and what have you. And the consultant was like, whoa, whoa, nobody nobody does that anymore. And I just that, to me, was struck me as like, wow, what, you know, we can't become that. We can't become these sort of automated things that just follow. So, I mean, again, clinical protocols, very necessary and important, but that human element, I think, uh, you don't ever want to have that uh, be missing in, in that in, in encounter with patients and, and their families. 
Right, absolutely. And how do we bring that human encounter back into medicine? Um, and I think of so many of the generational changes, I think, that we're facing, too, of, of doctors being trained um, these days with all of that technological, um, with all the technological advances that have been made. And a lot of those are great. But a lot of those also come with costs. Um, the decision to increase efficiency is not a value neutral one. Yeah. So now I want to jump in because this is, I think, really the heart of this article, and that is the just wage framework. So I guess the, the simple question is, what is the just wage framework? And it's and even the wage is, you know, pretty prominent in the, in, uh, the title. From what I understand, it's really a lot more than just wages and what we pay workers, correct? Yeah. So the Just Wage Framework is something that colleagues like Kelly and I, with uh, many others at the University of Notre Dame, developed over a series of conversations over a few years. Uh, We rooted the discussions in Catholic social teaching. Uh, We're at a Catholic university. Not all of us are Catholic. Many of us are in academic disciplines where CST doesn't directly come into our conversations regularly. But we thought it was really important to address some of the, what I called long festering labor questions of flat wages, erosion of benefits, uh, increasing precarity of jobs over the last several decades. We wanted to to confront those questions that a lot of us are wrestling with, um, but start with a common vocabulary. And we thought, wow, CST offers a nice window into foregrounding the human connections at the heart of, of labor relationships. Things like the dignity of work and those who perform it, the right of all to share in the collective fruits of our labor, and the right to participate in the economic decisions that impact our lives. So, And Dan, when you say CST, that obviously is Catholic social teaching. Yes. You know, CST provided this moral foregrounding um, that allowed us to speak to each other. So we could have an economist and a historian and a theologian and a social worker and a law prof uh, have a common conversation that these are things that we thought were important. And so we developed a just this just wage framework rooted in CST. It's not completely beholden to CST. We, it was inspired by CST, and yet we added things to it that we all decided were important. But it was great to have that common framework. And we came up with um, seven criterion that we think intersect with each other in order to promote a just wage. And as you said earlier, it's not just about compensation. Compensation that can be monetized is important, but it's not the end of it. So uh, a just wage is one that promotes a decent life for the worker and the worker's household. A, a just wage facilitates asset building, um, provides social security, is non-discriminatory and completely inclusive of a community, uh, is not excessive. Uh, it features uh, or it reflects participation by the workforce in shaping it. And it does account for uh, uh, qualification, expertise, experience at work. So these are the seven criteria that that intersect. Um, So wages are a part of it in the traditional sense, but it goes way, way beyond that. And we developed that and unveiled it at the height of the pandemic online. It's a multi-stakeholder tool designed not to tell people what a just wage is, but to ask them to reflect on these criteria 
uh, to discern what they think makes up a just wage, and then hopefully to engage in dialogue to produce that. When we say that a just wage requires participation by stakeholders, we really mean that, and it's built into our framework and online tool that the only way to get a just wage is to have dialogue, and we think that's increasingly fraught in our uh, our politics today and and in our economy, frankly. So that's an introduction to the just wage framework. Is, is that is that explained? Yeah, no, it really does. And thanks for going through the seven criteria. I think from a practical standpoint, if if I'm a healthcare leader and I'm interested in this, how do I go about? I guess, accessing the tool, I assume it's online. And how have you seen, particularly healthcare organizations, use the framework as, as they've looked at how to make uh, you know, their overall HR package, I guess, um, more just? Sure, sure. Well, it's definitely accessible online. It's at the, the Center for Social Concerns at the University of Notre Dame. But if someone just types into their favorite browser, just wage tool, it should pop up there. And then an individual can go through the tool, answer a series of questions, and basically engage with our ideas about um, what promotes justice at work. Again, it doesn't spit out a dollar number. This is what it means for a just wage in your community. Um, But it does prompt, uh, hopefully, reflection, as well as encourage further reading on the topic. So, but, uh, you know, I I haven't seen and engaged with particular healthcare um, employers or managers or workers on this, on the just wage framework. But what I have found in talking with uh, employers, managers, union advocates, workers, just a general public when we've uh, addressed this in workshops and in presentations, is that the term just wage uh, seems to invite a conversation rather than prompt a rejection of having a discussion at all. So often when we discuss in the U.S. the living wage mm. or a certain dollar value, it really basically seems to shut down conversation and people start arguing. But most people who employ other people or manage other people or work for other people uh, see themselves as acting justly. They want to be a just manager, employer, or a just worker that promotes the common good. And so I've been heartened by some of the conversations that we've had thus far where people are seem to be invited in. And that was what we wanted, right? Not to tell people this is what a just wage is, but to ask people to think about what would be a just wage. Now, that's not going to automatically produce uh, greater harmony at the workplace or solve all our problems. But we do think it's a tool that can be used by anyone, including folks in the healthcare sector, to do some of that important discernment and then hopefully produce some dialogue. The next steps for us in the Just Wage Initiative are thinking about whom to partner with in order to maybe take it to a particular workplace or organization to have some of these discussions. But again, the the point for us is to promote dialogue. Um, And that would include policymakers advocates and and employers. So uh, we have hopes that it can be useful there. 
I think the beauty of the Just Wage Framework, too, is just this idea of outlining these fundamental principles um, drawn from Catholic social teaching that really help prompt discussion. Um, every organization is so different. There's not going to be one prescription um, for any organization about what a just wage means. But even taking these principles, thinking about what is a decent life, what it, what it means to enable a decent life, um, what does it mean to have a wage structure that is non-discriminatory? What does it mean to enable workforce participation? Um, these are just fundamental questions that I think are, are very valuable in thinking about how to adjust salaries, how to create um, new structures um, of employment, of wages. Um, they're just very valuable principles, I think, that, that really just provide that seed for a discussion. Now, great discussion. I think you really captured uh, the article. And again, I would encourage people to to read that article from the spring issue of Health Progress. Betsy, uh, as you've listened to this conversation, uh, what, what are some of the takeaways you have? I think it really got at some of what we try to do with health progress, which is um, we, I mean, we have a good sense that senior leaders uh, read the publication. Um, we know that boards sometimes as an exercise will um, take an article, hand it out in advance and um, have a discussion about it. So I think um, I, I think it's heartening to give people this information. Um, I don't think it necessarily means that people are going to uh, run down a checklist or anything of that nature. But I think getting these concepts um, as part of the discussion about um, just wage and the factors that come into that, you know, beyond salary um, are important. Uh, and I think that um, the article made a really good point that um, we live in the real world. We know economic considerations are real for our membership. Um, so it should be a factor, absolutely. But it shouldn't be the only factor. Uh, part of the work we do is about um, caring for the whole person, whether the patient or the employee. And um, so just having a little more uh, awareness, um, perhaps some discussion related to some of these issues. Um, we know um, it's been a really challenging couple of years for folks. So thinking about things like staff retention and making sure people feel valued in the workplace and how ultimately that's going to affect patient care. Um, those are all wonderful things to spend some time reflecting on. Yeah, and I think, I guess the main takeaway is really that need to balance the moral and economic considerations. And I think this article did a nice job of reminding us of that. So thank you both. Uh, again, we had the pleasure of talking with Dan Graff. He is the director of the Higgins Labor Program at the University of Notre Dame. And Kelly Regan, she's a consultant with the Francesco Collaborative. Thank you both for joining us for this conversation. Thank you so much. Good talking with you, Kelly and Dan. Thank you. And um, I would encourage people to check out this article. Thank you, Betsy. And for Betsy Taylor, editor of Health Progress, I'm Brian Reardon, your host. This has been another episode of Health Calls, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I want to thank our producer, Josh Matica, and our engineer, Brian Hartman of Clayton Studios here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can download and listen to Health Calls on your popular podcast apps, and you can also go to our website, chausa.org slash podcast, to get information about this and other episodes of Health Calls. And to read the article, Just Wages for the Workforce, Why Healthcare Should Lead the Way, you can visit, again, our site, chausa.org. Click on the Health Progress link and go to the archive section, and it's the spring issue of 2022. Thanks for listening. <laughs>